again in our worship thus far. And we will continue that uh, worship now through the teaching of God's holy and inerrant word. We'll continue this morning uh, off in our, our series that we began many weeks ago now through the parables of Jesus Christ. Just by way of recap, as we always do, if you remember, Jesus' parables are essentially ingenious, simple word pictures with profound spiritual truths. A parable is essentially a word picture that demonstrates a truth. Para, where we get the word parallel from, means to lay alongside of. So a parable is a story that is laid alongside to demonstrate their parallel realities. Jesus mostly spoke in normal, sermonic exhortation for the first two years of his ministry. But on that day, as we looked at a few sermons ago in Matthew 13, he changed his teaching style to that of the parables. It was not to make his teaching clear or or more easy as some would believe, but rather it was primarily out of judgment that Jesus changed his teaching style. Parables have a primary role of judgment for unbelievers, those who spurn God's offer of salvation. They are not meant to be clear. They are meant to hide the truth in riddles. As well as being a judgment, the parables also have this beautiful element of mercy to them. Verse 48 of of Luke chapter 12 tells us, and from everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. Essentially, the more you know but still reject, the greater your punishment will be in the eternity that is hell. So there is this beautiful mercy element to the parables as well. But for those of us who have been brought near, for those of us in the body of Christ who know the blessing of salvation, the parables are clear. The parables are clear because they have their central focus in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The parables are about salvation and because we have been granted salvation, we can understand them. Today's parable is just the same. And perhaps even more so as it seems to make almost no sense upon first reading it. We must remember always that parables are stories. They're not factual circumstances, but rather word pictures to bring out spiritual truths. And today's truth that we'll be looking at is in relation to money. It's in relation to our financial circumstances. It's in, our, in relation to our mindset behind our financial circumstances. It's all about our stewardship during these few years of our earthly existence. Money is a common theme for Jesus' parables as we have looked at before. The better part of one third of the 40 or so parables have some reference or or some account of earthly riches or currency of some kind. And sadly, this fact seems to be justification for the health, wealth and prosperity teachers of the day. They would say that because Jesus spends so much time talking about money, that is the main way by which he blesses the faithful. Basically, they would say everyone who is faithful, they get rich. You be faithful, you get rich. But Jesus' real point, consistent with all his teachings 
is in fact exactly the opposite. Matthew 24, or Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 reads, You cannot serve God and wealth. Matthew 6, 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Mark 10, verse 24, How hard is it for someone who trusts in riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Not once did Jesus ever encourage his disciples or followers to fix their hearts on material possessions. Even more so, all the parables mentioning money make the exact opposite point. The pearl of great price and the, the, the parable of the hidden treasure which we have looked at before, they aren't about hoarding earthly possessions, but rather they show the value of the heavenly kingdom. This teaching is not only confined to the parables either. 1 Timothy chapter 6, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Perhaps one of the best summaries of stewardship of our finances is spoken by Jesus himself in, in Matthew chapter 6. No need to turn there with me, but I'll read it to you. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and consuming insect destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor consuming insect destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Each and every scripture reference about money, especially within the parables, reminds us that we are mere stewards of whatever earthly resources the Lord entrusts to our care. We must be wise and faithful with whatever God places at our disposal. In Luke chapter 16 which is our text for this morning as well, the Lord tells this peculiar parable that illustrates this very point. If you have your Bibles with us this morning, please turn there with me, Luke chapter 16. We'll be reading from verse 1 together. And the Word of God says, verse 1, Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management of the people... When I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and began saying to the first, How much do you owe your master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quietly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. The stories that Jesus told often contain twists and turns, but perhaps 
none more so than this. This is by far one of Jesus' most bizarre and strange parables. It seems so unexpected to tell the story whereby someone is being praised for basically stealing or, or embezzlement. How is it possible to get any kind of positive spiritual principles out of something that is so unethical? This is no mistake. Jesus has a very specific point to make. And to see that, we will look together at the tale as a whole, the twist that takes place, and then the three truths that follow in the five verses. And to see this, we must know and be assured that we must be wise and faithful with whatever God places at our disposal. Firstly, let us look at the story as a whole, right from the outset, it's always important to see who the parable was written to. Who is there? Who is Jesus speaking to at this time? This helps us to be able to determine the right truth. In chapter 15, the, the parable preceding this parable is the parable most of us know very well, the parable of the prodigal son. And it is, as we know, evangelistic in nature. Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son so as to call the Pharisees and the scribes to repentance. He asks and tells them to believe and come into the heavenly kingdom. This parable, however, changes. As we see in verse 1, it was taught to the disciples. Jesus was addressing people who are already committed to following him. People who love righteousness and live with a concern for the glory of God. The words following of the truths contained in this message are for believers. The message is for the followers of Christ. As you would have picked up, the, the main character in this story is a man to whom Jesus refers to as the unjust manager or the unjust steward. And there can be no doubt of this man's character and nature. His own actions reveal that he was dishonest he was unethical, he was unprincipled, and completely brazen in his wicked dealings. His downfall began because he used his master's assets wastefully. Whether it was overspending of the master's money, or whether he was using the master's money for his own personal expenses, whatever the explanation was, the manager figured that he was free to spend whatever he wanted because the master would never find out. Suddenly, this credible accusation comes against him. The accusation has reached back to the ears of his wealthy master. And the master, in turn, issues the steward with his marching orders, as well as a full audit of all his accounts. The steward knows that when he does the audit... He cannot cover up his crimes. It will be impossible for him to cover up his crimes. And subsequently he would be disgraced and never to be respected again. By the steward's own admission here, he says he's not cut out for manual labor. He can't dig. He can't beg. He's too proud to beg. And instead he decides to cheat the master out of even more money. He would forgive large debts owed to his master, effectively stealing from him so that he could buy friends and favors. He was ensuring that when he lost his job, he would be received by the people now in his debt. There is no nice or positive spin you can put on this. This man is completely unethical. 
and his actions are completely immoral. You wonder, Jesus surely could have thought of a thousand different illustrations with better examples than this man's actions. And again, you wonder at the marvel of the inerrancy of Scripture because Jesus makes no mistake. If we are shocked at the surprise ending, that is exactly what Jesus intended it to be. This is the exact example that he intends to use to make his point. The rich man or the rich master in this parable is an incredibly wealthy businessman. He's not a small timer. He does not need to be involved in the day-to-day running of his business. Instead, he pays this steward, this manager, to do so. He would no doubt have lived far away from where his business was because he didn't have first-hand knowledge of the steward's dealings. His business was definitely enormous, and we see that by the amounts owed to him by his debtors. 100 measures of oil and 100 measures of wheat. And these are only but two examples of some of his debtors. The steward must have proven to have been somewhat of a resourceful manager, otherwise he would never have been put in such a prized and respected role by the master. The two men no doubt had a a long-standing relationship with each other. Stewards would normally have been servants in the household first, most likely growing up and being somewhat part of the family. And now he had been placed in this trusted and respected role whereby he had full control over the man's entire rich business. The steward was able to act on his own authority without close oversight or interference by the master. It must have come as somewhat bad news when the rich man found out that someone had made an accusation against his trusted steward. This once trusted steward had been found out he was guilty and he had violated the faith that the master had placed upon him. The rich man acted straight away. He summons the steward and he asks him to give an account for what he has done. After that, he would lose his job. He would no longer be steward. Once the report was finished, he was terminated from the employment. He would wrap up his remaining business and leave the company. This was a pretty bad decision on the master's part. The guy had already committed fraud against him. Why would you give him the opportunity to commit further fraud? If the steward squandered the master's possession when he was accountable, he clearly cannot be trusted when the last incentive for him has been removed. There was no way to cover over his guilt. So whilst the, whilst the steward prepares his report, he concocts this scheme. He's ensuring that when he did lose his job, he would be looked after and would not be homeless. He still has full control over the master's possessions. And so he decides to put his master's debtors into debt, in debt to him also. The steward would use the time he had left at the control of the company to make his master's debtors owe him great favours. And his scheme, it worked like this. Debts in the agricultural economy of the day would normally be settled at harvest time. Oil here refers to olive oil, which was a staple of the day. And wheat, of course, is, is an essential commodity. And the steward would... The steward called the debtors in one by one and reduced each one of their debts, ranging from 20 to 50%. When the harvest came round, 
the amount owed would be much less than the original amount agreed upon. And this was, a, this was a huge discount that the steward was offering here. A hundred measures of oil is equivalent to about three and a half thousand liters. So a 50% reduction to that would have equated to some tens of thousands of dollars, enough to pay a worker's salary for almost two years. And likewise, a hundred measures of wheat was also a huge amount. In order to produce that much wheat, you would need to farm pretty much all of Adelaide's entire city centre. So a 20% reduction was tens of thousands of dollars. Again, over two years worth of wages that the steward merely wiped out by the stroke of a pen. And these were, as we read, only but a few of the rich man's debtors. Several discounts like those would have amounted to some huge fortune, enough to set the steward up for an entire lifetime. He was giving huge favours to these guys and with reciprocation of favours being a crucial part of first century Jewish culture, the steward bought himself a lifetime of security. But here is where the story takes somewhat of a startling turn. We might expect the parable to end somewhat like the parable of the wicked servant in Matthew 24 that we looked at last time. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour which he does not know and will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the expected ending. But instead, the master commends the unfaithful steward because he has acted shrewdly. Up until this point, it was pretty easy to sympathize with the rich man. He seemed like the victim of the steward's embezzlement. But the fact that he admires the unethical practices of the steward suggests that he's not a man of integrity either. It's vital to understand that unlike the master in the parable of the talents and the parable of the two stewards, the master here is not a figure of Christ. The story is set in the realm of secular business, where this sort of sinful, self-productive practice is all just part of the game. Even in today's world, rich businessmen often voice admiration for the shrewd tactics of their business partners. That is the nature of secular business. We've seen recently on the news this banking, Royal Banking Commission where they've been looking into the actions of, of several banks in Australia and the CEOs of these banks, one's already been knocked out. But they, are, they have been caught shrewdly dealing on the side to further their own personal wealth. And it's not just in these big companies either. That can be said for most small businesses without a Christian moral compass. Note the specific language that Jesus is using in the text here. It's not the steward's disloyalty or his wicked character that, that he admires. It's not his lack of honor, but rather he's sacking, he admires what the shrewd dealings that has taken place with his debtors. Shrewdly, or the word shrewdly here has this idea of, of being prudent or being canny, being cautious or being keen-witted. A steward's plan to steal as wicked as it was, was simply ingenious. And the cleverness of that scheme was what produced the master's praise. He was impressed 
that his steward in this fleeting moment of opportunity was clever enough to take advantage of a situation and work it to his long-term advantage. The steward uses amazing foresight. He wasn't thinking about covering up his past transgressions, but rather he was planning for his future. He was planning to secure his future. And that's what the master is praising him for, the forward thinking, the shrewdness that he has shown. Jesus' point is very simple. He plainly states it in verse 8. The sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Basically, the hell-bound sinner seems to be more forward-thinking, show more diligence about their temporal well-being than saints have in the laying up of treasure for eternity. That's the whole point stated simply by Jesus. The sons of this world are, are those who have no part or interest in the kingdom of God. They have nothing to look forward to except the remaining years of their earthly lives. But they seem to be more clever when it comes to securing a future for their retirement years. The sons of this light are not that clever when it comes to preparing for the eternal future. We see this today. Ungodly folk seem to be bring an amazing amount of energy and skill and focus to the task of acquiring money. People will save their entire lives in order to buy that nice caravan or that nice house somewhere. Unbelievers do that because they have nothing else to look forward to. The few remaining years left will be their most comfortable. After that, all they have to look forward to is eternal condemnation. The expression here, sons of light, is a common New Testament phrase and it designates the true disciples of Christ. We see it in, in John twelve thirty six. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become the sons of light. Ephesians 5, 8. You were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children, as sons of light. If we are the sons of light, it is only right that we have our minds set on the things above and not on the things of this earth. We have something far greater to look forward to than the temporal pleasures of this world. Yet we seem to display this complete lack of wisdom compared to the strategizing and the twisting and the turning unbelievers go through. Like the unfaithful steward in this story, they will do anything to secure their future in this world. Consider the absurdity of this truth with me. People preparing for retirement have at most three three to four decades to plan for, usually much less. Life is short, the world is passing away, one John tells us. Yet the sons of this world will go to any length possible to gain whatever advantage they can for the waning years of their life. Their worldliness is not what Jesus commends, but rather their shrewd resourcefulness is. Surely we, as sons of light, bound for eternity, ought to be more active, more zealous, more wise about redeeming the time, preparing for the future, so as to lay up treasure in heaven. In verses 9 through 13 of Luke chapter 16, Jesus makes three practical exhortations regarding 
believers' attitudes towards money. He outlines for us how our perspective on money could, should shape our thoughts and behaviours towards others, towards self and towards God. Let us read those verses together starting in verse 9 of chapter 16. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Immediately after Jesus commends the shrewdness or the forward thinking of the sons of this world, he adds this word of advice in verse 9, make friends by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternity. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is, use your money to make friends, not earthly friends, but friends that will welcome you into our eternal home. In other words, be generous with the people of God. Put your money to the work of others. Help the needy among God's people and you will indeed have that treasure which is in heaven. It's that simple. The same principle is supplied in Matthew 25, verse 35. I'll read those passages for you. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and fed you or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? Truly I say to you, the extent that which you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did to me also. This highlights our duty to use the money that God has given to support the ministry of the gospel. This is to help the saints, to help others in need. Think of it like this. Will people be standing on the edge of glory ready to embrace you because through your investment in the gospel ministry they heard and believed and gained eternal life in Christ? That is the exact imagery that Jesus is using here. The unjust steward was liberal with his master's money and his actions, though unjust, they won him many friends and secured his future. Jesus is reminding us that we are stewards also. And unlike the unjust steward, we have the master's express permission, even more so we are commanded to be generous with his resources, all for the purpose of making eternal friends. It is a simple argument. If a scheming, dishonest unbeliever is shrewd enough to use his stewardship to make wise and faithful friends, how much more should we as believers use our master's resources to make friends for eternity? Notice what Jesus calls 
wealth here in verse 9. He calls it unrighteous. Unrighteous mammon is something that you might have in your translation. All earthly wealth belongs to this fallen and transient world. All earthly wealth will one day be burned up, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. First Peter, Second Peter, sorry. Make friends for yourselves with the money that the Lord has gifted you so that when it does fail, when it is burned up, when it is gone, you have friends that will receive you into an everlasting home. The implication is clear. It is every believer's duty to invest his temporal wealth into an enterprise that will reap far greater eternal rewards. We are to invest in the gospel ministry so as to spread the gospel truth and the relationships gained while doing so will enrich heaven for all eternity. Nothing else we do with our money will last forever. And this is not just an, an investment in evangelism either. This is an investment in God's people, period. Chad was sharing with me yesterday how he and Beth have been blessed by the generosity, by the investments of the saints here at NCC since they've arrived. Jesus wants us to have this renewed mind when it comes to money. Endless personal accumulation is sinful and wasteful and robs us of our eternal blessing. Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Give and it will be given unto you, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. The ultimate fulfillment of that promise is an everlasting treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is vital for us as believers to invest in things worthwhile, to give to the gospel ministry, to invest in people's lives. As you might have heard just before when when the offering was collected here at NCC, we collect this offering every week and when we give thanks for it, we pray, may this offering go to the furtherance of your kingdom. There's a reason why Peter prays that or whoever the worship leader is prays that week after week. It is important, it is vital to give to the gospel ministry and in doing so, reap the eternal blessing and eternal rewards that come from it. Secondly, Jesus for Jesus' first exhortation highlights the need for others. The second exhortation is an examination of ourselves. It is an echo of the lesson that we saw in the parable of the talents. The believer who receives little, will ultimately be accountable to God, just like the person who has given much. Both will give an account of what they have done with the resources entrusted to them. How a person handles the little things will ultimately show their true character. As verse 10 says, He who is faithful in a very little thing will be faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. It's something I hear often from well-meaning believers, if I had more, I would give more. It's a common thing, right? And, and it can be an easy mindset for us to slip into. If I had more, I would give more. But truly faithful people are generous because of their character, not because of their circumstances. 
The widow who had virtually nothing gave everything that she had. Lots of people who have everything give absolutely nothing. The man with few resources who spends all on himself won't suddenly become selfless if he becomes rich. More money will only increase his self-indulgent impulses. So it is crucial for believers to have a proper perspective on their duty as stewards, regardless of whether they have little or much. Jesus' statement here suggests that wise stewardship is best learned in the small ways first. It is folly to wish for wealth if you have not been true and faithful in what God has already given to your care. Praiseworthy stewardship in the eyes of God isn't about large and lavish sums, but rather it is about integrity and spiritual character. Praiseworthy stewardship in the eyes of God isn't about large and lavish sums, but rather it's about integrity and spiritual character. If you truly see the value of investing in eternity, you will do it with whatever resources are available to you. What makes a good steward is the understanding that everything we have is a gracious gift from the Lord. As Psalm 24, 1 tells us, the earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. The things which we call our own are ultimately God's possession, not ours. They are not for private use, for our own personal benefit, but they are, rather they are divine blessing held in trust to be invested as wisely as possible for the good of others and the glory of God. That is true whether we have little or whether we have much. We must be seekers of those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. What we do with our money reveals the true state of our hearts. If you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust riches to you, as verse 11 tells us? Those who are not investing in the work of redemption are avoiding their duty to be faithful stewards. They are wasting the passing moment and impoverishing themselves for eternity. God doesn't bless, nor does He reward people who waste His resources, spending it on unnecessary luxuries or status symbols. To wastefully spend money on cheap trinkets or, or creature comforts or worthless time-wasting diversions only robs oneself of true eternal riches. Verse 12 adds the final stinging indictment. If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? It's a reminder, once again, of true stewardship. That we currently don't own anything as a permanent possession. We brought nothing into this world and it is an absolute certainty that we will leave exactly the same way. Everything we have is a stewardship from the Lord, not just the money we give on a Sunday morning or the money we might give to charity. All we have is the Lord's and it is to be used for His glory and His glory alone. Whatever we eat, drink, whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. The tragic irony of sinful self-indulgence is that the more you waste on yourself here, the more stuff we accumulate here, the less treasure we will have in heaven. 
True riches are on the other side. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 18 gives us this beautiful bit of wisdom. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We long for that day. We must live for that day, thanking God for the stewardship that He has given us. All the while ensuring that we don't get too comfortable here on this side of eternity. Finally, our story ends with one final exhortation. Verse 9 emphasizes our duty to use our earthly resources in the ministry of others. Verses 10 through 12, Jesus urges us to examine our own hearts. And in his final verse, final exhortation, verse 13, he urges us to focus our hearts on God. Verse 13 reads, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Stewardship of God's resources is an all-consuming obligation. It's not a part-time calling or a once-a-week offering at church. Stewardship is not casual custodianship. In biblical terms, a steward is a slave. If we are stewards, then we are doulos. We are bond slaves. Slaves not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from our futile way of life, but with the precious blood, the precious blood of the unblemished lamb. As believers, we are the property of the Master who has purchased us with His own blood. He has an exclusive and absolute control over us by divine right. We cannot have a relationship with anyone or anything else. No slave can serve two masters. Jesus is suggesting here that the way we manage our stewardship is evidence of whether we are true believers or mere pretenders. What we do with our treasure reveals where our heart is. We must live as stewards, those who have been redeemed. Live as those who have had their life lifted out of the pit. Then and only then can we fully appreciate that everything on this earth is gone in but a fleeting moment. We long and live for the eternal riches that we have in Christ Jesus. This morning, as, as we examine our hearts here before the Lord, we praise God. I praise God. I know Mr. Grant, he shared many times in, in meetings how much he praises the Lord for the blessed giving of the saints here at New Community Church, who give abundantly week after week. But let us still ask, do we live as stewards of whatever earthly resources the Lord has entrusted to us? Are we really being wise and faithful with everything that God places in our care? Do we desire to bless others with our financial resources? Done not in a way that everyone knows, but rather in a private and personal way between you and the Lord. Are you faithful in the small things? It's not about what you give, but rather about who you love, who you love more. Is your love for Christ or is your love for the things of this world? It is crucial if you examine and find that perhaps you love the things of this world more if you love your house or your car or, or sports or, or even your own family. If you love that more than the Lord, something, something is not right. It's all about priorities. The things of this world cannot save us. 
nor bring us eternal blessing. But we must use whatever resources the Lord has gifted us for His glory and His glory alone. And that is something that will reap eternal glory and riches. And we look forward to that day. Let us pray. Dearest God and Heavenly Father, I humbly come before you once again, acknowledging you as the King of our lives, the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, Lord, and we are but recipients of, of your gracious gifts to us. And Lord, we acknowledge our failure many times over, Lord, in giving you due honor and glory with the gifts that you have given us. And so we pray, you, pray that you would forgive us of that. Help us to have a right mind and right perspective when it comes to being a stewardship, a steward of what you have given us. May we take away these truths now. Take us to our homes in safety, we pray. In your precious, holy, wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.